The advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Dr. Doreen grand is the... Dr. Doreen is an expert in autism. Doreen grand Dr. grand Dr. Doreen grand Dr. Doreen grand is a visionary in the field of autism. Now you can ask her questions on Ask Dr. Doreen. Good morning and welcome to Ask Dr. Doreen here on the Autism Network. I'm Shannon Penrod and I'm here with the fabulous, the wonderful Dr. Doreen Grampiche. Good morning, Dr. Grampiche. Good morning, Shannon, and good morning, everyone. Nice uh, to so be here. Isn't it nice to be here? Um, so I'm so thrilled to be here. We're going to be live with you guys for the next hour. Uh, this is Wednesday, the 15th of December, 2021. And so if you're watching right now, the ideal time for you to start writing in questions for Dr. Grampiche. She is a true expert in the field of autism, having been working in this field for 40 plus years. I know that's crazy to even think about, but she has made herself available for this hour to answer real questions in real time. So here's sort of the ground rules for all of it. Uh, we want you to write in with your questions for yourself or for people that you love in your life that are having issues that are autism or autism related. Um, but give us as much information as possible, including the closest major city that you live near, because all the resources that Dr. Grampiche might uh, mention to you aren't necessarily available in all places. And then sometimes you say, oh, I live just down the street from something you may not know about, that, but that Dr. Grampiche does. So tell us where you are and be as specific as possible when you're writing in. However, we need to give you the disclaimer that even, you know, I believe Dr. Grampiche is, with reason, I believe that she is the preeminent expert in the field of autism in our time, but even she is not able to give individual specific advice in this platform, in this format, because she hasn't had eyes on the situation. So she's just getting one little, little piece of the information, but that little piece will lead her to ask you questions and give you information from her many years of experience, which might help you when you go back to the expert who does have eyes on the situation. So please start writing in. We're live right now, as I said, on YouTube, on Twitter, on Facebook, and about 15 other live sites. The show will podcast later. Um, it'll be available as a free download wherever you get your podcasts. We are the number one rated autism podcast, thanks to all of you. So Please check that out wherever you get your podcasts. And the other thing that we do is we ask that if you find something that's useful to you here, will you please share it in some way with someone that you think can also use it? Because we're, we're, we're really about getting the content out here, not going out and promoting um, the show. So uh, good morning, uh, saying hello to our journey, Cameron's new life. Good morning to you. Uh, so we count on you guys to spread the word and let people know, hey, there's a free resource. Go check it out. You've been experts in real time, like Dr. Grampiche. I'm not aware of any other place on the planet where you can do that related to autism. So we're really proud to be here with her. Uh, i Two quick things that I want to say, and then I'm going to uh, I'm, I'm going to unleash them on you, Dr. Grampiche. But I want to remind everybody that this Sunday, the 19th of December, if you're in the Los Angeles area, we're doing our annual Sensitive Santa event. We've been doing this now for nine years, which is crazy to believe. Wow. This year, we're partnering with the Ed Asner Family Center for a COVID-safe, socially distanced 
uh, sensitive Santa drive-through event. You do have to register for this event, but it's entirely free. You come to the event, and if you've never been to the Ed Asner Family Center, it's it's really a lovely, warm, welcoming place. You will be directed how to get in line. You first of all, when you register. There's a half hour window in which you can come. You've got to come during that half hour because we want things to run smoothly. And part of keeping it um, sensitive, sensory sensitive, is not people keeping people in the car for a really long time. You'll come in to the parking lot. You'll be treated to a very brief but fun experience. You will be uh, in. Uh, you'll have an opportunity to wave to Santa and every single child who's on the spectrum or has. We're, we're including other special needs this year, which I love. Um, every single child, adult, uh, teen on the spectrum or with or with other special needs. Uh, and their siblings that are under the age of 18 will be given a free toy, some of the toys that we've been featuring in, the, in uh, this year's Toy Guide. So uh, it's really worthwhile. We, we unbelievably still have tickets. It's one ticket for one car load. So you can have five, six kids in your car, but you need one ticket. It's free, but you must register. I will be heartbroken on the day of when people show up and say, can I get in now? And I'll have to say no, because we have to plan in advance. Yeah. So please register. Uh, Traven, put it in the comments uh, where you can register or you can go to our Facebook. We have links there where you can register. And I even did a crazy video with my uh, with with Santa. Excuse me. With Santa. Santa was here yesterday and we did uh, we did a lovely short. I felt like it was a car dealership. Uh, announcer because I had to get it done in a certain number of seconds. And I was like, and you'll have this and you'll have that. And you'll have that. the other thing that I wanted to say is, I don't know about the rest of you, but I was running around like a chicken with my head cut off this morning. And there were all these things going on. And I was on hold with a company that had me on hold for over an hour and then couldn't answer my question. I was like, Err. and then I was reminded of something that somebody said to me yesterday. Just imagine that all of those people in the Midwest with the tornado they have all the problems that we all have every day and now yeah. this. And then yesterday was the ninth anniversary of the Newtown shooting. And I was reminded of the fact that on that morning, gearing up for the holidays, everybody had stuff going on and they dropped their kids off. And some of those kids were special needs kids. And then, you know, something else came in. So I know you got strife. I know you've got stuff going on today. I'm sending you hugs. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm keeping you in my thoughts and prayers, but let's remember that we have so much to be grateful for today. And that sort of brought me up short and I was like, oh yeah, I think I'll be okay that I was on hold for an hour. Traven is just telling us that, uh, Traven is originally from Kentucky and that he used to work in the town that that candle factory was in. Can you imagine? Um, and the, the, the catastrophic loss of life there, I, I just... It, it's just shocking to me. We're sending our prayers to everybody. But um, remember, whatever you've got going on today, it's not that. And that's something. So just putting it out there. I had a moment this morning. All right. Uh, Dr. Grammy Shea is here, though, and we don't want to waste her time. Um, but she's somebody, can I just say, that I'm grateful for. When I, Whenever things happen in our life that are good and... Um, or even things that are challenging, but on it, like right now we're in the middle of finals and with my son for freshman year and that's challenging, but you know what? It's good challenging and 
And we wouldn't have that if it hadn't been for her and for her wisdom and her guidance. We wouldn't have that. My son would not be a freshman in college. So, so happy uh, to be here with you and share your message. Thank you. and, and can I just say, um, yeah. you just made me think of something and I'd like to just mention this one person. So, yeah, I, uh, first of all, thank you very much for your kind words. I really appreciate that. It's, it's um, You are someone that I'm very grateful for. This show is something that I'm very grateful for because it always grounds me and reminds me of what uh, is the most important thing to me, which is getting information out and helping families across the world. Um, uh, speaking of that, you had recently sent me a, a, uh, email that came in and someone was in Australia was a, uh, it was a, actually a physician from Africa, if you remember, who was now living in Australia and I was, uh, wanted to help that person. And so I referred them to a very dear old colleague of mine, someone that I hired I would say, gosh, I don't even know, like 35 years ago, uh, when I opened my first site in, it would have been our third or so clinic, I don't know, in Sydney, Australia. And um, I reached out to her just to make sure that she's still active and that I'm referring this family to the right place. And the sad news that she gave me was that her partner, who used to also be a behavior therapist at uh, card in Sydney, who has been struggling with pancreatic cancer for the past three years and is um, most likely in her last days. Mm -hmm. So I uh, just want to send my love to uh, both of them here, should they be watching this show at some point, they know who they are. And uh, Mm -hmm. sending them love, energy and, and strength. Uh, sometimes uh, life just challenges us tremendously and it is incredible the strength of human beings and how we get through these hard times. So sending a lot of love to uh, my dear friends and colleagues in Australia. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Grampichet. We got a lot of people already writing in and I didn't mention that if you have a question um, for Dr. Grampichet this morning, you could be writing in on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter. Uh, or you can you can always write directly to me, Shannon at autism-live.com. Shannon at autism-live.com. Uh, I tend to take those for later shows. We tend to do the stuff that's right in front of us. And we do have questions that come in our live feature on autism-live.com. And I've got some of those this morning. But I want to take the live questions first. So RKN has written in and said, I have a question. Do autistic kids have gut leak? Is there any scientific approved theory? about that yeah so unfortunately uh i guess the the best way to answer yes first of all there's a lot of scientific uh uh, peer-reviewed journals and articles and and findings about this fact yes uh they do but it is not just limited to autistic kids uh in some form or another many of us have uh a leaky gut is what it's referred to. And <clears throat> unfortunately, um, this can be caused by a lot of different things. Uh, and essentially the concept is that if you are eating a lot, for, for a variety of reasons, there could be inflammation in your gut lining. Uh, 
Um, and it could be a reaction to something you're eating that you cannot digest. It could be, uh, you know, leakiness due to overgrowth of yeast. It could be lots of different things. But the issue is that when you eat proteins that you are not able to digest, those proteins break down halfway, let's say. So the proteins usually break down to peptides and then peptides break down to amino acids and then amino acids are kind of the nutritional blocks that have to go through our body and give nutrition. But when they break down kind of halfway, then that's to the peptide level. Those peptides leak through the gut lining and then they cause a lot of mischief because those peptides um, resemble to the body, they resemble uh, endorphins. They will cause a reaction in the child that often might be similar to our own body's endorphins. Uh, so yes, it is a problem. That's why a lot of families um, will try different diets. They will identify the types of foods that children uh, cannot digest properly or are allergic or reactive to, and they will take those things out of the child's diet so that, <clears throat> excuse me, so that the inflammation in the gut uh, lies down or reduces in some way or another. And then over time, it is very possible for the gut lining to heal. There are a lot of doctors that can help you with this sort of stuff. We usually rec recommend that you look on MedMaps. Uh, that organization has physicians who are trained to know all everything I said and a lot better, a lot more than that. Um, and they will be able to guide you through this process. And I see that, uh, I think it was also Arcan who's written in, is the keto diet good for ASD kids? You know, the keto diet is not, uh, only going to be effective. It's not, it can be good in some ways, but it's not necessarily what's going to reduce gut inflammation. So I would recommend that you talk to a physician because more likely they're going to start you with gluten-free, maybe casein-free, maybe corn or soy-free. A lot of times for our kids, what's causing uh, mischief is uh, food coloring, sugar, there's all these other things that can be removed from uh, the diet. Uh, and it's not necessarily, these things are not necessarily in line with the keto diet. And and let's, I always remind us pesticides, we need to reduce the pesticide load on our kids' bodies. Yeah, that's so. probably the most important and, and number one issue is, is toxins. Mm -hmm. There we go. I, I just want to say, did everybody see my eyes glaze over the very first time Dr. Grand Pichet said peptides? I'm pre <laughs> I'm pre-programmed. I I went to a bunch of conferences early in my my term as an autism parent, a parent of a person on the spectrum, and they said they would say peptide so often that now oh. I just go, oh, peptide. Um, <laughs> so I didn't mean to fuzz out, but it's it's a little overwhelming if you're not somebody who's into the whole science of it. I do think it's worthwhile to know that many of us saw a huge difference, not everybody, but many of us, my son included, we saw a huge difference yeah. when we changed our kids' diets. Huge, yeah. huge difference. We saw them come awake. We saw them be ready to learn. Yeah. I, I just feel the need to make the distinction though, Dr. Grampy. A lot of people go, oh, well, I'll just change the diet and then my child will miraculously catch up on the skills they missed 
that that's not the ticket though, right? It's it's like a hand in hand kind of thing. That if you if your child comes out of the fog, then you have to teach them the things they miss. That's right. And I love the way you just said it, Shannon. And I'm really passionate about this message. Like I am actually going to kind of dedicate myself to giving out this particular message because you know, a lot of times I'm I'm just shocked as you probably are, Shannon, but you know, for me, having been in this field for 43 years, like I cannot believe that we're still, uh, you know, parents still have to kind of find their own way. They still have to, there's no clear uh, direction out there for parents. And so I, I'm going to make that my mission is to, to make it clear for a parent who's just entering the game, right? And the, the issue is that you need to do a, a multitude of different things and every child is different, but it, you have to, first of all, our goal, all of us as parents is to, is to teach our children and keep, get them to a point where they are uh, they are uh, caught up to their peers or they are able to function in the world in a way that they can thrive, right? So we want to teach them skills. We want to teach them how to communicate. We want to teach them how to socialize, how to uh, behave well, etc. It's just a lot of stuff we want to teach them. But we, you have to think that if the child is not feeling well or if Shannon, as Shannon used the right word, is feeling foggy, uh, you know, then they're not able to learn, right? So there's a whole bunch of stuff that you should be doing in order to help the child feel awake, aware, uh, ready to learn. And those diets are one of those areas that you need to look into because I promise you, um, I've had so many times I've seen kids where I've just, they've come into my clinic and I've seen them and the first thing I notice is they have very, very dark rings around their eyes and that's kind of a sign of allergy. And I will tell the parents to try, go home and try to take the child off of dairy, just dairy alone, right? Casein. And, uh, you know, a week later, the parents will call me and say, oh my God, what a huge difference that was. Or gluten, when, when you see, or, or, you know, when you have children who have uh, high levels of, of yeast and you help them overcome that. Those types of things are tremendously effective in making the child just more aware. And then they are able to learn rapidly and try to catch up with their peers. Another one, Shannon, that I never want to forget is sleep. Like we all ignore the fact that our kids don't sleep. And without sleep, not only are you tired and not able to learn, but you also, <clears throat> excuse me, are not able to produce enough of the neurotransmitters that your brain needs in order to function. I mean, a lot of us, if we don't sleep, like I didn't sleep last night, we, we don't necessarily function at our best, but yet we expect our kids to be able to handle it, right? So sleep is a vital one as well. Okay. And uh, what I loved is that Ushalot asked a question about like, so what order did I do my son's diet? And you pretty much did it right there for us. The first I wrote dairy, then gluten, then we looked at the yeast, then we realized the pesticides and the artificial colors and all of that um, and, and went on from there. But uh, we did the organic in the middle and I wished we'd done it in the beginning because yeah. there was a big, there was a big change. Yeah. And by the way, 
when we went on him, we went organic for me too. I'd love to say that we got my husband hundred percent there, but you know, you do what you can. <laughs> right? um, and I'm never going to be able to talk him into not going through a drive-through. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's just not going to happen. So we went as organic as possible. I felt a difference. I yeah. felt a big difference. And my husband noticed a difference in taste, that, you know, which I, you know, people say, oh, there's no difference in the taste. And he was like, what did you do different? This tastes so much better. It was organic. So, um, and, but we saw with each thing, different changes. So I want to go back to Ushalad's first question, which was really important. My kid is not aggressive. But if I say no to him for things he asked for, like the iPad, cookies, or when I ask him to work, he hits me. How do I make him not hit me when his demands are not met? Great question. Yeah, that's like, it's almost a perfect question. Thank you for that, because it's uh, one of those questions that's, first of all, if, if you follow exactly what I'm telling you to do, which is hard, you, that will change. But it's the core basis of all behavioral therapy, right? So the premise of applied behavior analysis, ABA, or behavioral psychology, behavior therapy, is that any behavior that receives a reward increases, and any behavior that does not receive a reward decreases. And if you think about life, that's just exactly how life is. Um, <clears throat> An example would be, you know, you go to work as an adult because you get paid, right? Or perhaps in some cases also you have other rewards as well associated with it, like your colleagues that you like to see or you're doing a mission-driven work or whatever it is, but it has a reward. If it doesn't have a reward, you won't go to work. Let's be very honest. If you don't get paid, you don't like the people, you don't have any kind of attachment to the place, it's just not going to work. Everything we do, and that's a kind of a broader example, but every single thing we do, uh, we do because it gains us some sort of uh, reinforcer. Now, reinforcers, uh, there's two ways to look at what we're trying to, to achieve in life, uh, all of us. One is we're always trying to gain something that we want, like attention or a tangible object or an activity or whatever. Um, or we're trying to avoid something that we don't like, right? Like uh, going to school, going to work. We try to avoid the things that we don't like. Both of those conditions, if we're able to avoid something or if we're able to gain something, those are both rewarding situations. Now, with our kids, they learn over time that certain behaviors will gain them access to the rewards that they want. And then those behaviors will increase. And the very simple way to alter that is to not reward the behaviors that you want to decrease, right? Don't reward behaviors that are not adaptive, functional. Do not reward challenging behaviors. So in your child's example, your child has learned that if they say, I want something like candy or whatever it is, and you say no, they will <clears throat> tantrum or hit aggress, and then very likely they will get the object they asked for, right? So it's very, it's a sign of intelligence really to figure out that, hey, if I ask for something, I don't get it. If I, if I hit, they'll probably give in to me. Now, and it might not be you, 
it could be someone else. But as long as someone has given in, it becomes a behavior that is effective. So the child learns, this kind of works. I'm going to hit from now on because it gets me things I want. Similar to the child who tantrums in the classroom because they've figured out when I tantrum, they take me outside and have me walk around the playground, which is much preferable. So it's kind of like this type of behavior, uh, whether it's assaultive, aggressive, you know, hitting, tantruming, throwing, whatever it is, it is essentially communication. The child is communicating they want something. And if you let them have it, they will continue to communicate that way. So the short answer after all of that, kind of giving you the basis for it, is when your child hits or aggresses or does any kind of behavior that you find inappropriate, don't give him, give them the object that they want. Don't let them have the thing they want. But to be fair, make sure that you give the child a more adaptive, appropriate way to ask for the object. So you're not going to give the candy when they hit. But you are going to give the candy when you model and prompt and the child asks nicely for the candy. So you, you have to teach the child to differentiate what is appropriate way of communicating and what's not an appropriate way of communicating. And that's super important because if you don't teach the appropriate way, what you're doing is you're taking away a whole bunch of reinforcers. And that's just not fair. So you always want to make sure the child has a better way to communicate the things they want. Can I ask a question, though? Because I think this is where it gets dicey for caregivers, is that a lot of times we find ourselves in the mix. So, you know, the thing happens where they ask for the candy, we say no, and they hit. And then we think, oh, Dr. Grampuche said to teach them the appropriate way to ask for it. But that's not the moment. Is that correct? Yeah. We should do that that's at a right. different moment. That's right. That's correct. In fact, a lot of times parents can tell kind of, you have a feeling that, oh, and, and what I, actually, actually, I'm sure you agree with this, Shannon. It's an unfortunate thing, but we also, of course, are, you know, responsive to the consequences in our environment. It's not just our kids, right? So what ends up happening is we, same concept of behavioral therapy, and I don't want to confuse the parents, but we end up kind of walking on eggshells around our kids and being very careful to not say no. We become very careful to not take things away from them. Why is that? If you think about it, it's exactly the same premise that I explained. We are trying to avoid the child's aggression. We are trying to avoid that hour-long tantrum. So what do we do? We give in. The, the fact, this is all, it's always a cycle right now, uh, just like that. So Shannon is right. If your child has already started to do the kind of challenging or inappropriate behavior, that's not the time to teach. That's the time to leave. That's the time to make sure the child does not have access to the thing they wanted. It doesn't matter. They can tantrum for an hour. It doesn't matter. You need to just let it happen because they will, our kids are smart. They will figure out that this tantrum, this aggression just doesn't work anymore. So if your child's aggressing, protect yourself, block their aggression. Do not give in to their aggression. That's really important. 
a different time when you are uh, you have the tools let's say you have maybe people around you who can also help or just when your child is calm you go up to the child and you have the candy or object they wanted and before you any opportunity arises where you will have to say no you actually model for the child to ask for candy. They can ask it non-vocally as well. They can point to a picture. They can type on a keyboard. They can do a PEX board, whatever it is. But teach them an appropriate form of asking and then give it to them. And that's how you help the child learn the difference between appropriate and, and challenging behaviors. Yeah, because I think that's where we get a little confused. And, the, and I so appreciated you saying that we, we do avoid um, putting demands on them because we don't want to have these things happen. But I, you know, I don't know whether it was you or somebody who tra you trained that helped me to understand that when my child is having a tantrum, that because I would cycle, I would go, oh, no, it's happening and it's going to be the rest of our lives and we'll never be able to do anything. And I would get into this crushing sort of spiral of thinking. And instead, you guys taught me that what I should do is reprogram my brain to go, okay, I understand why this is happening. It will come to an end. It's always come to an end before. I'm going to give myself something to do while I'm here, which is that I'm going to be like remembering all the things so that I can write it down on a piece of paper that happened in the tantrum. I'm going to be a, I'm going to turn into a court reporter That's right, right now. And, and by the way, that is what they teach um, to do whenever there's a stressful situation. Mm -hmm. That if you're, you know, if you're being attacked, if you're, you know, in the middle of a robbery to like separate the emotion, put the emotion over here and become a very dispassionate court reporter. Okay, now he's throwing something. All right, mm -hmm. well, now I need to go move that vase before he throws that. But you take the emotion and you shove it to the side. You can save it for later if you want to deal with it later. But in the moment, you just become a court reporter. I found that to be so helpful when my child was having the mother of all tantrums because otherwise I would be upside down. Yeah. Um, yeah. It isn't so. easy. It's so tough. I mean, it's just just one, 30 seconds of hearing our child scream and cry is stressful. I, you know, and it's very hard to say, like, separate yourself from it. It's just, I know how hard that is. I do think, though, that, you know, having someone there with you helps. Yeah. If you have a spouse or someone who's just available to you to give you support in these moments, it's extremely important to have that. Uh, as Shannon said, you know, if you really distance yourself from it, um, physically as well. The, the one thing that we as parents fear when we're, when a child is like having a major tantrum and you, and I tell you like, leave the room. The one thing that we fear is that they will hurt themselves somehow. Right. And so if you can have a camera in the room and these days it's so inexpensive to uh, purchase these small like cameras that are, that are uh, like Nest or you know those types of cameras. They have them for rooms now, and it's so easy to uh, have one in the room just so you can say no and leave, and it's and be able to watch and make sure your child is safe. And and trust me, children will throw fits, but they are they will not necessarily they'll it, it'll actually be less if you're not there because 
a lot of times when our children have a tantrum, there it, it's accelerated and exaggerated because they want to get your reaction. They want mm -hmm. you to stop them and give them what they want. And when you're not there, it's a faster message of just saying, uh, I'm not giving in. Mm -hmm. um, and again, safety is paramount to all of us. And so I don't want to, you know, there are cases where there are children who are so aggressive that it is not possible to do this sort of thing. But in most cases, our children just learn to tantrum or scream or cry, etc., because they're trying to communicate something and you just need to teach them that is not a functional way to communicate. Missy wants to know, what can you do if your child becomes violent and is too big to control anymore? How do we keep them safe and the family safe? Yeah, Missy, you know, that's a really good question. And honestly, I want to say it is not, I, I don't recommend that a parent try to manage alone a child who is very big and has become violent. And this is it's super unfortunate because like a lot of times it's preventable, right? Our kids can learn to communicate in ways that instead of becoming violent. But sometimes, and I've seen this numerous times, I will come across a teenager, let's say, who has who is now very big and uh, the behavior, they just over time, uh, you know, learned that aggression is effective. So it's very hard now. It's an ingrained type of behavior and it's super hard to change that. So uh, like for us as behavioralists, we actually often will have two behavior technicians at the same time working with such individuals because it has become so, so uh, ingrained in their in their repertoire of behavior that, hey, when I want something, I hit. When I don't want people bothering me, I hit. So, you know, and it's not something that's easy to change. So I would rather, in that case, tell you as the parent to not focus on fixing it yourself, but focus on trying to get a team to come help you. And by that, what I mean is, you know, reach out to behavior analyst companies like ABA providers, uh, get your insurance behind it so you have resources to have them come into your house and help you. They will teach you things and there are other ways, of course, for every parent, I think it's very useful to learn the, the behavioral techniques that we talk about, like right? their you know, basic ABA. Um, and that's super important, but even I, as a, a, as a behavior analyst and psychologist who's been in the world of autism for over 43 years, I would not approach it alone if I had a large, aggressive child. I just wouldn't. It's not right. You will lose, and you might get hurt, and your child will actually learn that they are the winner here and that the, the behavior will become more effective. So it's not a good idea. And so, you know, my, my suggestion is to focus on getting a team of people into the home who can help you. There you go. Um, NH says, my four-year-old can do so much more language cognitively, socially with me or therapists one-on-one -on -one than at preschool. Um, they're in a classroom of 12 uh, that's a special ed classroom. 
where other kids overwhelm him socially and sensory wise? Will this improve over time? I love this question because it comes right to the heart of a lot of what happens for our very young kiddos in school that isn't effective. So Dr. Rampiche, help us. <laughs> so I, you know, there's two things I want to say about this. First of all, no, it's not going to improve because your child is, you know, looking around and uh, the there's a combination of things that you mentioned. One is there's modeling possibly because the child might see other kids kind of acting out and getting things they want. And so that's the modeling side of it. The other side of it is that our children are sensory sensitive in some cases and other kids screaming and, uh, you know, running around and that sort of thing might be very, very disturbing to your child. And as I said, all they're trying to communicate is that this is not good. For, like I am having a really hard time here. And so I can't focus and, you know, it's not an environment. I, you guys, I, sometimes when I do an intake, like when I used to do uh, diagnostic intakes or even just uh, evaluations, I remember one time I, I had a hour and a half long clinic with one mom who had three children on the spectrum with her. Right. And I was one by one going through and diagnosing each one. I think it was like almost two hours. And I'm telling you, when I came out of there, I was completely overwhelmed. And I thought to myself, how does she handle that? Like it is tremendously difficult. And so uh, you know, with our kids, imagine if they are sensitive from a sensory perspective and they are exposed to screaming sounds and sudden movements and sudden things that are going on. And it's very, very disturbing. Now, another thing that is also the case is that a lot of times in school, people don't expect uh, a lot of our kids. Our kids, you know, in therapy and with you and uh, you're, you're pushing your child and you're modeling and teaching and you're getting the best out of them and you're continuously pushing them forward. But a lot of times in school when there's like one teacher and possibly one aide and there's 20 kids and it's a special environment where there's a lot going on, no one's really expecting a lot out of the child either. So the child, this is called behavioral contrast. The child learns that in that environment, I can tune out. Or I can, you know, I don't have to respond. I don't get my reinforcers here anyway. It's like a negative environment for me. Um, no one really asks me the things that I know. So they kind of, their behavior deteriorates. So, you know, the short answer is no, things are not going to improve. I suggest that you really try to find a better placement. I When children are, um, did, the, did the family say how old the child is, Shannon? Four, so four year old. So that's awesome that your child is four. And I asked you if it's possible for the child to be in a less restrictive environment. So in other words, is it possible for your child to be in a regular education classroom with an aide? Now the school district might fight you on that because they don't want to pay for the aide, but uh, you know you'll win that fight if you do it right. And the bottom line is it would, it's always better for our kids, especially kids who are responding to one-to-one -to -one therapy. If your child's responding and doing well, then it's very important 
to push them and motor keep them motivated and put, not put them in, in you know always put them in an environment that is a little bit higher so they're learning from their environment and i guess that that means that you'd want to get an aide who can help the child in the classroom your school district is responsible for that for paying for that um you would have to call an iep and i think uh, do you and Bonnie still kind of review those procedures, Shannon? Yes, we do. Uh, we, she's got a whole playlist on our YouTube um, that's uh, Bonnie Yates, uh, Know Your Rights, um, where you can catch up and you can... We don't have Bonnie on this month because of the holidays. She'll be back in January, but you can still send questions in, specific questions for Bonnie Yates. She's a special education attorney um, to answer all these types of questions. But Lots of us have fought and won to have the one-on-one aid. But because this child is four, and and I want to get to, um, Jenny has written in, and I want to get to your comment, Jenny. Um, I'm going to, as a parent of uh, a a young man who started intensive good quality ABA when he was three and is now a freshman in college, I'm going to say that if you can get good quality intensive ABA at four, in my opinion, that's a better use. And I'm a former teacher. I love school. I'm not saying anything against school, but in that age range. Now, Jenny has written in and said, what's not good for autistic children is ABA. And she's even given a link to an article about things that, that potentially happen in ABA that would not be good for uh, people on the spectrum. And I and I want to say, Jenny, we totally respect your opinion. I just want to make sure we're talking about the same thing because I think you'll find that both Dr. Grant Pichet and I will um, agree with you that there are things that can happen when ABA is not good quality that are exactly the kinds of things you're pointing to. But what we're going to be talking about for the next couple of minutes is really good quality ABA that takes into consideration the individual and their needs, and that that might be different than what you've been exposed to. And I just want to leave room for that idea in the conversation. Yeah. Um, Thank you for that, Shannon. I appreciate that. And also I want to add to that and say, Jenny, sometimes even if it is good ABA, uh, you might choose not to take that path. And that's perfectly all right as well. Uh, ABA is a teaching technique. It's very simple. And, uh, you know, people have different preferences. I have uh, always been a strong supporter of high quality, good ABA, but I'm also a supporter of dietary biomedical interventions. And I'm also a supporter of various other medications that might help our kids. Overall, over the course of the last 43 years, I've learned that there are things that can help uh, individuals uh, you know, just do better in life. Thrive is the word I like to use because I think that we all, you know, all of us, uh, we, we try different things just so that we're living a more comfortable, I guess, successful, uh, you know, healthy, happy life, right? That's what we're all seeking. And, and getting your needs met. And getting That's your, a lot of it. Getting your needs met. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's for, for our kids. That is the number one thing is to help them get to a point in life where their needs are met. Uh, they can communicate. They're enjoying their lives. They're interacting. They are happy, healthy individuals. Yeah. Um, 
and Ushalad has written something that said, my kid was in gen ed with a one-to-one, but he was expected to perform like a neurotypical kid and he failed. He was finally moved to special class and he is seven and a half. As a former teacher and as a parent of uh, a, a child who was diagnosed at three and went through the education system, I'm really frustrated with the education system and the way they, you know, inclusion. I, listen, I'm a fan of inclusion, although I will I will agree that it's not perfect for everyone. But when inclusion is not done well, uh, often it gets blamed on the child, and almost always across the board, it's they didn't know what they were doing, and that makes me want to give you a hug and give your child a hug and and say he didn't fail. Um, that classroom failed. Yeah. When we talk with Bonnie, we talk about least restrictive environment, LRE, which is the thing you were just talking about. Your child has a right to a free appropriate public education in the least restrictive environment in which they can access, have a floor of opportunity, a floor of opportunity to access the curriculum. That does not mean that they have to perform like a neurotypical child. That does not, but a lot of schools don't understand that. And And if there are some things that if they do in the classroom, if they're hurting themselves or another person, then that would disqualify and say that that environment is not appropriate. But being able to keep up at the pace is not a reason to take them out. It's a reason where the school has to shore up their thing. I don't mean to get on a soapbox, but I see this time and time again, and it ticks me off that schools pin it on the kid. It's not, it was not your son's fault. Dr. Yeah, Anderson, what would you like to say? No, I, I completely agree with you, Shannon. I'm there. I, I agree. I think that I have a, actually a lot of thoughts about this, and I'm really glad Ushala wrote that in because there are so many different situations. And, and this, to begin with, we have to say every child is different. That's where this starts. You, this is why it is so important. And honestly, it's funny because this morning I told you earlier, Shannon, I was kind of like meditating because I was so tired and I had a headache and I was thinking to myself, you know, I guess the only like, you know, what am I going to do for the next 10 years of my life or what do I want to dedicate my time to? And it's exactly this. It's helping a parent find what is right for their child. Every child is different. And uh, with first, let's start there. Some kids actually do better in special ed, period. Like that, I will start there only because they get, you have a fantastic special ed teacher. You'll have more aids. Uh, that, that's the requirement. Just like earlier we were telling Jenny, there's good ABA and bad ABA. There's also good special ed and bad special ed. Mm-hmm. And if you find that incredible special ed teacher and you feel like your child is, really doing well in that environment great that's wonderful that's where you need to be but if you feel like your child is falling behind not performing not being asked to do anything not attended to not challenged not rewarded then you're not in the right environment and you need to find an environment that is more appropriate because let's face it guys our kids spend more time in school than at home. Like it's hours and hours of their day. It's seven, eight hours a day. It's crazy amount of time to be in the wrong environment, right? Now with regular ed, Shannon is absolutely right. My God, 
there there's a thing called accommodations and when a child is in a regular ed program that's why i said with an aid there's still several levels like you can have a one-to-one aid the entire time just for the child you can have a one-to-one aid in the classroom not just for this child but for other children as well you can have the child in the regular ed program for one hour a day three hours a day certain classes there's so many different, there's reverse mainstreaming. There's so many different models that make sure your child become is successful. It's on the school and, of course, the IEP team, which isn't always just the school, but it's, it's part of the whole program is what do we do for the child? And the classroom setting is one of those things. Uh, the amount of support is one of those things. The amount of accommodations is one of those things. How we deal with behavior, behavior intervention plan is one of those things. All of that goes into identifying the appropriate school program. Yeah, and unfortunately, because uh, IDA is still, still not fully funded, what schools do is they create a program. They create a program and they go, well, we have this program and we have this program, we have this program, and they try to shove kids into each one of those programs. I just want to be the voice that reminds all of us that it's called an IEP because it's an individualized education program. And if you see that your kid doesn't fit into one of the programs that the school says, well, these are the programs that we have, that is not your kid's fault. And you can go back to them and say, my kid, make make another program. Let's yeah. create another program. I can't tell you the number of times I had to do that with my son. And I dug my heels in. And then just when I would be like, oh, I'm about to cave in, back to Grand Pichet, the time I remember more than anything else was when it was time for my son to go to junior high. And he had excelled in everything. And it was time to go to junior high. And the school said, oh, he had not been in special education. And they said, oh, we're going to put him into a special education encased classroom for junior high instead of switching classes. And, and I was like, no. And, and Dr. And, and they were oh, pressuring, pressuring, pressuring. And Dr. Grampichet said to me, don't let them do that to you. I think you threatened to kick me with one of your pointed shoes. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, and, she, and he said, don't, don't cave into that, Shannon. We prepared him for this. He is yeah. ready. And yeah. it was life changing. And we said to the school, nope, you've got to create a new program. And they did. And two years later, when he graduated out of that program, they thanked us and said, you taught us that more could be done. And and now they have kids going through a different program. But you know what's going to happen? Somebody else is going to come and they're going to try to shove them into the program my son had. And they're not going to fit in that. And then that mom is going to have to say, "Uh uh-uh, no. Individualized education program. Um, Nakvi has said, one of the student parents has complained that he became aggressive, say no whenever they want him to do a task at home. Yes, that is one of the questions that we had before. Are you asking specifically about a new question? I'm not 100% sure. Write into us and tell us. In the meantime, I want to go back to RKN said uh, one more question. If we give omega-3 fish oil before ASD kids going to bed, um, is that good for helping them with sleep? A, uh, hmm. Omega three fish oil. I've never, I've never heard that fish oil would be helpful for sleep. Uh, you know, fish oil generally will be helpful for things like cognitive skills, memory, 
uh, obviously it will like it thins out your blood. I'm trying to think of all the side effects of fish oil. I don't know. I I I have not read anything about fish oil helping sleep, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't. If you uh, if the physician, if your child's physician says that it does help, then please follow their instructions. Or if you've had that experience, there's nothing harmful in giving fish oil. So that's a wonderful thing. But I will say, as you said before, everybody is different. Uh, we gave fish oil to my kid and it caused stimming. There you go. Very rare, very rare. But this is why you give one thing at a time so that you can isolate which thing it that's is. Right. That's right. Uh, Ushalad wrote back and said, thanks so much. It's very hard to know what the child does in school the whole day as our kids can't express much. Much okay. parents are not allowed to go inside the school due to COVID. What yeah. can be done, please? I've got at least one tip. What have you got, Dr. Bertichet? Well, this is a tough one because COVID has changed things so drastically. And I also actually did not even realize at this point, I was trying to get a, a show a school to a parent where I was going to suggest for them to take their child there and they wouldn't allow any kind of tours. Even, even like, actually I was trying for the health group, you know, which is purely spectrum kids and so on. I couldn't do it. So COVID has altered things. I don't know, Shannon, my suggestion, I guess, if, if it was me, what I would do is I would try to get with all the other parents and I would ask permission to allow to put a camera in the classroom. If all mm -hmm. the families allow that, if everybody signs off on that, you guys can have a camera with a live feed so everyone can actually see on their phones what's going on. You can't do that without the permission of all the other parents because you're looking at their child as well. But it is a safety thing, and I am aware of parents who have done that. So that's something you might want to consider. So, and the advice that I have comes from Dr. Mike Dorsey, who you know, Dr. Oh, Grant Boucher. He, well, for many years, he was the expert in the United States. If, if whether it was a school district or a family was trying to show what setting was appropriate in a classroom, he was the expert that would be called into court. And um, he came on the show once and best piece of advice in terms of classroom, he said, you know, sometimes when you don't know what's going on, you can ask. And that the way to ask this is to say, can we have a schedule of the day for the, for the student that aligns with the goals from the IEP? So tell us from, you know, in 20 minute increments, which goal are you working on? And he said, you'll get one of two things back. Either people will go, what? We don't have that. How would we possibly have that? Or there'll be a big pause, right, while they try to put it together, or that they will immediately come back and go, here's the schedule because they're actually doing it. Yeah. If you got the second one, you know your child is probably at a really high level. Shannon, uh, your feed. Oh, there you are. You're back. Oh, my back. Uh, he said more often than not, you'll catch them with their pants around their ankles, that they are not, they don't have the child's schedule. They're not paying attention to what the goals are, but it will remind them that that's a legal document and that they're supposed to, and it'll put you in a position where you can, your child will get more support quickly. So you just send in writing and say, um, you know, you, you can use whatever excuse you can say due to COVID and we don't really have eyes on, can you please give us a schedule of their day? and which, uh, which one of their goals and their IEP they're working on during each 20 minute increment and then watch their heads explode. Yeah, so. I, I just wanted to, like, that's a really good point. And I, I do wanna just add one other thing, which is 
you know, we have, you can produce, a, a, I mean, assuming that the teacher w is cooperative and honest, you can produce a small journal for the teacher, not one where the teacher writes a lot of narrative. A lot of teachers don't want to do that because they have, don't have time. They don't want to put the time into it. But if you produce a journal that has bullet points and the teacher and at the top has like a Likert scale. So in other words, for instance, it'll say uh, challenging behavior, language, uh, interacting with other kids. Let's say those three things, right? And then at the top, there's a scale from like zero to five. Zero is really bad. Five is really good. And uh, the teacher basically just has to look and say, okay, language, yeah, I think he was a four today, you know, challenging behavior, oh, it was a zero, he didn't have any challenging behavior, whatever it is, or, and they just score it that way, like three points, very easy for the teacher, it'll take them two seconds, and that's mm -hmm. something that maybe is a little notebook that's attached to your child's backpack so that it's not, you're not adding to anything, it just literally takes a minute to do. That's something that, Love that you could later put all those numbers on a graph and you'll see exactly how your child is doing every day. Yes. I love that. I love that. Uh, because, you know, it's hard for teachers in the classroom, but you made it super easy for them to report and let you know how things are going throughout the day. I love that. Uh, we've got time for one more question. Rosario wrote in and wanted to know her son is five and is diagnosed with Down syndrome um, from the age of three. Uh, he does not have autism, but she wants to know if the services that we've been talking about would potentially be helpful to a child with Down syndrome. Yeah. So, you know, yes, the, the short answer is yes, your child will benefit from ABA, 100%. I used to work with kids with Down syndrome many years ago when I was at UCLA, and I love working with kids with Down syndrome. They are the sweetest people in the world. Um, they, so, and ADHD as well, children with ADHD will benefit from ABA as well. In fact, conduct disorder, ODD, all uh, many, many childhood disorders or uh, problems can be helped with ABA. But the problem is that currently insurance, health insurance, only covers ABA for autism. So if you do not have a diagnosis of autism, you can still get ABA in some places, but it will not be funded. And also because of that, a lot of providers of ABA services limit their services to just autism, unfortunately. So, you know, if you have a child with Down syndrome, what I would do is I'd, I'd learn the techniques myself because often kids with Down syndrome don't have a lot of the sensory issues. They don't, so they're, they're, they don't, therefore they end up not having a lot of the challenging behaviors. They just have sort of, uh, they're a little bit delayed on the learning side. So in that case, it's a lot easier. Um, and my recommendation would be to learn the uh, techniques of, of behavioral therapy and apply them yourself. There we go. We are really out of time. I want to remind everyone, you can still register if you're in the Los Angeles area to join us on Sunday for a COVID safe sensory 
sensitive Santa drive-through experience. We're partnering with the Ed Asner Family Center. We're very proud to be able to do that. It is a one-day event. It's free. Each uh, child and their sibling will get a wrapped toy that some of the toys that we've been featured featuring here during the Festival of Toys and in our toy guide. You can check out the toy guide by going to either autism-live.com or to autismnetwork.com. It's on both of those. Um, but please check out on our Facebook where it is that you have to register on Eventbrite to um, get those free tickets. It's one ticket per car. You can squeeze in as many people in your car as you can safely put in. It is uh, COVID safe. You won't be leaving your car. We ask that you keep your windows up unless everyone in the car is safely able to mask. You will have an opportunity to wave at Santa and you will get a free gift, but you won't come into contact with anyone. We're absolutely hysterical about being safe. Uh, so they're coming directly from me. So please join us for that wonderful event, but you must register. Tell somebody if you know them in the Los Angeles area. It's a great event, great opportunity to get a great toy and to get to wave to Santa. We don't want our kids to miss out on that. And in a way, it's even, you know, a lot of kids get overwhelmed by being too close to Santa. So it's kind of good for our kids. Won't take you long to go through. And I guarantee it'll be fun, fun, fun. So register for that. Don't come to the event on the day of and cry to me that because I, I can't let you in. It's just like that. So Dr. Grampy thank you so much. We have one more Ask Dr. Doreen before the end of the year. That's next week. You guys aren't going to want to miss that. Make sure you join us with her next week. And until then, give your kiddos a hug for me and one for you too. Bye-bye for now. Bye, everyone.